Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to be talking uh, about the first uh, referendum in Great Britain uh, on the membership of the EEC which would later become the EU um, and I'm reading from David Edgerton's amazing book. If you haven't read this you really really must get a copy at the rise and fall of the British nation. There are some very interesting parallels between the first referendum in 1975 that was successful. Um, it was a, a yes vote to remain in the uh, EEC um, and the um, ill-fated uh, Brexit vote that was called in 2016. We need to examine the the reasons for Britain's um, decision uh, under the government of Edward Heath in 1973 uh, to join uh, the EEC um, and to take the long view, as, as David Edgerton does in his, his book, um, is to consider the disruption to uh, Britain's position as a trading nation that the Second World War created. Um, before the Second World War, uh, Britain was a, a key part, perhaps the most significant part, of global free trade. The British Empire was a system for um, uh, managing um, free trade, and Britain was a, a free trade nation. This um, kind of argument had been had throughout the, the 19th century, um, all the way up into the uh, first decade of the 20th century, and um, Joseph Chamberlain's uh, Tariff Reform League. Um, it was a, a free trading nation, but the, the Second World War fundamentally disrupted that. Uh, the Second World War um, changed the uh, entire nature of Britain's um, social, political and economic makeup. David Edgerton writes, In the 50s and 60s, the United Kingdom was no longer, as we've seen, the free-trading, liberal, globally-oriented economy it had been. It was more national, uh, and its policy was to increase national food production and increase self-sufficiency in other areas too. So um, Britain, in the post-war, uh, two post-war decades, 
was far more autarkic than it had been uh, written prior to this throughout uh, the 19th century um, and uh, up until the early 20th century had relied, um, had, had prioritised trade as its means of, of survival. Indeed, the attraction and the danger of going into the common market was precisely that it offered a more liberal economic future to the United Kingdom. An important concern of British farmers was that the common market producers would flood the British market. So here we have a debate between um, free trade and protection that uh, Britain's instinct to uh, return to uh, its its free trading status um, drew it towards the common market, the European Economic Community, uh, because there was a club of nations with whom one could trade with in a tariffless manner. Um, this was uh, what Britain had uh, been a, a kind of a, a champion of throughout the 19th century. Of course, at this point, Britain still has a considerable part of its empire. The most valuable bits, places like Malaya and India, are gone, but it still has markets in places like Africa. Both then and now, there were um, empire loyalists who believed that um, the the British Empire uh, and the Dominions, uh, or the Commonwealth as it was uh, developing into, should be the world market for British goods. But as um, David Edgerton points out, it is not surprising, if we recall, that uh, in the past the United Kingdom had in fact traded more with Europe than with empire. Recent history has disturbed a long-standing and very important set of economic relationships. Churchill's um, view of uh, Britain's place in Europe, um, Britain, Churchill, uh, shortly after the war, um, 1946, argued that the United States of, of Europe should emerge and that Britain should be in it that uh, Britain should, uh, Britain has basically three uh, uh, three points of, of world power. That was its connection to the United States, um, its empire, or the Commonwealth as it would become, and its relationship with Europe. Um, and, the, uh, and it shouldn't rely overly on any one of these three sources of, uh, of power and support. Edgerton writes, Churchill was committed to a united Europe with the United Kingdom in it, as his great campaign of the late 1940s testified. It was an argument with strong liberal internationalist aspects and was fully compatible not only with the UN, but also the relationship with the USA and the Commonwealth. Churchill's campaign was funded by British businesses ICI Rothschild, General Electric, Vickers, Lever, Boots, Austin, Ford, Rolls-Royce, Monsanto, the Lancashire Steel Corporation and United Steel all contributed. This Churchillian perspective was influential in the part, in part um, uh, of the Tory party, not least in the case of Harold Macmillan, of whom we shall hear about more in a moment. Its mere existence should have been enough to disprove the thesis that imperial feeling held back European integration. One of the uh, the myths that's exploded in Edgerton's book 
is that um, Britain was uh, kind of hostage to uh, imperial nostalgists. In fact, it was some of those uh, greatest imperialists, like Churchill, who believed that um, a, a future trading relationship and perhaps a wider political relationship with other European states was uh, inevitable in the aftermath of the Second World War and in the uh, uh, the new Cold War politics uh, that faced um, the, the, the country. Breaking out of this um, trap of economic nationalism, which had never really been part of uh, the, the, the British establishment's uh, preferred way of um, uh, envisaging the country, but that had been a, a wartime uh, and a, an immediate post-war necessity. That's what uh, the interest in Europe in the uh, 50s and 60s was all about. It was about, as David Edgerton puts it, um, trying to move towards a future of free trade. Opening up Europe was a priority. As the Conservative Party Manifesto of 1959 put it, our aim remain, remains uh, an industrial free market embracing all Western Europe. The problem was that the six partners who'd signed the Treaty of Rome in 1957 wanted a very much smaller free trade area, not restricted to industry, with a common external tariff. The British project failed, and uh, EFTA, the European Free Trade Area, uh, in which um, it was to join, uh, it was joined by Austria, Denmark, Norway, Portugal, Sweden, and Switzerland, was no substitute. Um, the European Free Trade Area allowed the United Kingdom to maintain Commonwealth and other preferences uh, and trade in food, uh, which was what mattered. But it could not join the six in the Club of Rome. And the establishment of the common market between these six founder members uh, meant higher tariffs against the United Kingdom, keeping uh, Great Britain on, on the outside uh, because of a common external tariff, which was higher than the tariffs of particular trading partners. Um, by 1961, there were essentially no alternatives then to join. Uh, and that's why the government applied for membership. Uh, being within a free trade zone with an external tariff in Europe had major attractions. Um, it meant opening the home market to manufacturing competition, which is something that the, the British had never really done before, or at least not in, encouraged. Um, and it also maintained and extended uh, the, the business British companies were doing in Europe already. So there were elements of give and take if, if they'd have been able to get in in the 1960s. Continental Europe had uh, a large and increasingly wealthy population. Uh, the uh, uh, economic boom, the economic miracle in Germany and France uh, after the war um, was something that would kind of power Europe in the 50s, 60s and 70s. So, um, what was public opinion in Britain? The elite uh, and the press wanted to go in and were prepared to throw overboard Commonwealth preferences and a common set of Commonwealth citizenships. Um, the elite, um, as David Edgerton uh, writes, um, were, who were defined as those who were still active and who were listed in who's who, around 10,000 people, overwhelmingly men, lived in the South East, read the Times and had graduated from Oxbridge if they went to university and so on and so forth, was strongly of the belief that British prestige had declined. 
So at this point in the 60s and 70s, uh, Britain's um, uh, elite groups, uh, far from being gripped by the populist nationalism uh, that they are supposedly infused with, with now, though admittedly right now that's only a, a tiny proportion, looked at the the outcome of the war, they looked at the legacy of the war, and they, they saw um, uh, objectively that Britain's uh, prestige had declined. Strong uh, majorities um, that s surveys showed were in favour of all sorts of multilateral organisations, the EEC, NATO, the special relationship with the USA, the United Nations and the Commonwealth. So for for these figures, the you know the the, um, the kind of the, the socially influential bourgeoisie of the Britain's nineteen fifties and sixties, they weren't looking at a trade off between um, ties with the Commonwealth and um, really, uh, being in the EEC. Far from it. Uh, there was no majority for either or. Most of these people wanted all the relationships that Britain had and to have them um, have Britain deeply interconnected um, with, um, with, with, with uh, in, uh, international um, engagements. The CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, created in, uh, created in 1965 by a merger between the Federation of British Industries and the British Employers Confederation, came out strongly in favour of common market entry because the common market um, and uh, was larger and because uh, it uh, offered preferred legal and uh, fiscal uh, regimes. So it, it, what it offered was um, regulatory and legal certainties for uh, British um, goods being sold in Europe. 1965 is a, a fateful year. Not only is it the creation of the uh, the CBI, which obviously has a huge impact uh, in the, um, uh, the the campaign to join the, the the common market. Also, it was the year that uh, Edward Heath uh, succeeded Sir Alec Douglas Hume to become leader of the Conservative Party, and it would be Ted Heath in 1973 following the surprise uh, loss of Harold Wilson in 1970, who would uh, take Britain into the EEC. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But in both 1963 under um, Harold Macmillan and 1967 under Harold Wilson, um, it was French President uh, Charles de Gaulle who refused um, to allow uh, Britain entry. Um, Britain's uh, entry needed to be unanimous and de Gaulle said no. Um, He thought that Britain really represented something quite alien to the European project as it was developing. It was um, a, a, an island that had a maritime history, not, a, a, in his view, a, a sufficiently integrated continental history. It was uh, industrial rather, agric- rather than agricultural and um, brought its, uh, Im- imported its food from abroad. Even Britain's most, um, uh, most valiant attempts at autarky uh, hadn't really um, succeeded in uh, ending Britain's dependency on food, uh, food imports from overseas. But um, de Gaulle missed the fact that gradually, throughout the 50s and 60s, Britain was becoming far more a, a European nation, socially and culturally, um, and by, by choice. There was a... Um, if you consider the um, anti-EU forces in Britain at the moment, mainly on the political uh, uh, right to the political far right, though there are um, a, a left-wing... Uh, objectors to the EU, the so-called Lexiteers, who see it as kind of a sinister capitalist club, um, who obviously haven't got uh, a a whiff yet of the sinister capitalism that will be approaching them fairly shortly in Britain's uh, new buccaneering world role. Um, Well, they were mirrored in many ways by similar kinds of figures on the left and on the right, um, uh, decrying the um, uh, decrying membership of the uh, plans to join the EEC during the 1960s. Uh, there was operation. Uh, there was opposition from entering the common market, um, but it actually was weaker than the elite groups who wished to to join. Imperialist arguments were quite important to the anti-marketeers. The Canadian uh, Lord Beaverbrook, Max Aitken, who had been uh, one of Winston Churchill's closest friends and a uh, key part of the uh, wartime government, um, his newspaper, the Daily Express, opposed entry uh, passionately and it argued for empire free trade and kith and kin imperialism, uh, which is really code for white imperialism, the connections with the, uh, the dominions Canada and Australia and New Zealand. Um, and it it was also interestingly um, a a kind of a key uh, um, advocate of a kind of a anti-Americanism. Um, a there were simmering uh, resentments uh, around uh, America and war debts um, throughout uh, much of Great Britain uh, in in the post-war years. Um, 
Much of uh, Beaverbrook's argument uh, was economically nationalist, defending subsidised British agriculture against subsidised European agriculture. The Labour Party, though not the Labour-supporting Daily Mirror, was against entry into the common market. Hugh Gateskill, the uh, leader of the Labour Party, uh, in a famous speech in 1962, denounced uh, the end of a thousand years of history as an independent state and that the Commonwealth could not exist if the mother country became a province of Europe. Though, to throughout the many debates over the EU, the, uh, the EEC, I beg your pardon, and later the EU, the suggestion that Britain has in some way ceased to become a sovereign state is, is, is really quite fanciful. Um, the uh, idea that Britain had become a, a province of Europe or a vassal state um, is uh, really negated by the fact that Britain still has a functioning sovereign parliament and, and, and government. Um, but these, this kind of nationalist rhetoric really is, is something that kind of doesn't particularly stand up to a great deal of close scrutiny. The Labour left was um, uh, generally anti-common market on the grounds that the EEC was a, a capitalist club. Now, the, the likes of most of the uh, Labour front bench, most of the Labour cabinet, had um, very little in common with the left of the Labour Party. Um, and for the likes of Gateskill and Wilson, who followed him, uh, they had little worry uh, about um, entering into a, a kind of a, a, a capitalist club, um, there was uh, that wasn't their their, their chief objection. Um, many of uh, many Labour politicians in the centre ground um, who um, didn't like the sound of the EU were almost trying to echo a working class nationalism more than any sort of. Um, more uh, cerebral, if um, and, and radical, um, far left uh, rhetoric. In a strange way, though, the the Communist Party of Great Britain had some of the most astute objections. Um, the Communist Party noted that wages were higher in the United Kingdom, worker contributions to social services were lower, and that there was a danger of harmonisation of social services. Uh, on the contributory model uh, on joining, which meant that um, there would be possibly a race to the bottom in terms of uh, living standards uh, and uh, contributions and, and wages. Um, there were those on the Labour left who distinct disguised their own nationalism by claiming that the common market represented continental protection and that the United Kingdom should look outwards and remain truly internationalist committed to the Commonwealth and the United Nations. Um, Howard Wilson uh, endorsed this line of thinking. In opposition, Wilson suggested that there were opportunities to supply... Listen, and here we go into sort of slightly absurd territory, as Wilson periodically did. Uh, Russia and the countries behind the Iron Curtain with, with British chemical plant and to do research to feed the millions in Asia and Africa. It was very nice, he claimed, to do research on colour television and put effort into producing bigger and better washing machines to sell in Dusseldorf. But instead, we should be mass-producing simple ploughs and tractors and researching one or two horsepower steam engines because that is what the world needs. The now-redundant British steam locomotive works could help here. 
one gets a, a sense that um, most of the uh, most of those who uh, objected on the grounds of economic nationalism to the prospect of the EU and the kind of the the, the greater force of, of what is essentially globalization um, probably understood on some level um, the hopelessness of their cause um, and the, uh, the the fact that Wilson, despite his protestations in 1967, is applying to join. Uh, that that would kind of give uh, give lie to to that one really. Um, once in office, Wilson's position changed, as we can see. Uh, the Labour government got a positive vote in Parliament with dissenters and a narrow victory at the party conference for a second application to join, which was obviously vetoed by de Gaulle. Wilson loses the 1970 general election, allowing in Ted Heath, who was a, a, a working-class Tory. Um, his achievement was finally to take Britain into the EEC, um, but he managed it, uh, really, because de Gaulle... Uh, de Gaulle's political career had ended in 1969 and he died in 1970. The uh, the votes of the, the right of the Labour Party um, swung the vote for the Conservatives um, who had a, a small majority and dissenters of, of their own. Um, and the, uh, Brit uh, the Great Britain joined the EEC in 1973 along with Ireland and Denmark. Um, this was a huge achievement for Heath, who had been a long-standing enthusiast for Europe and had been involved in negotiations in the 60s. Um, and the, the fact that he had been um, elected leader in 1965 with a, a legacy of kind of Europhilism um, meant that it, the, uh, the kind of the European, the pro-European uh, orientation of the Conservative Party um, was 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 kind of more widespread than it just being about Heath. Um, the majority of Labour MPs voted against joining. Labour, as a party in opposition from 1970, remained opposed. Labour promised to renegotiate the terms of entry, and having returned to office in 1974, um, achieved minor changes which it put to a referendum in 1975. Uh, it is a measure of the significance um, to the elite of staying in the EEC that this constitutional innovation was not objected to, for its purpose was to take the decision out of the hands of the divided Labour Party. It is fascinating, isn't it, that um, the 2016 Brexit referendum was designed to uh, well, it was designed to win uh, a, a yes vote, a Remain vote. Um, it was designed to end the divisions in the Conservative Party, which had been going on for uh, at least 25 years on the subject of Europe and the EU. Um, and uh, it took um, the, 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 the fringe, radical uh, right of the, of the Conservative Party, who, given the, the end of the Cold War and the... Uh, collapse in any sort of legitimacy of uh, neoliberal economics needed a uh, kind of a demon to um, jump up and down and shriek and shout about endlessly. Um, so a, a divided Labour Party 
in the 1970s and divided Conservative Party from the 1990s onwards. Generally speaking, the Labour left was against membership and the right in favour. The Yes campaign was better funded, better organised and confidently confirmed what the political and administrative elite had long decided upon. Every government since 1959 had been in favour of membership, including the Labour government itself, and the Conservative Party consistently so in government and opposition. The Conservative Party, now under Margaret Thatcher, remained strongly in favour. And it must be remembered that Mrs Thatcher, um, beloved of the uh, Conservative right and the uh, those that um, have campaigned so tirelessly to drag Britain out of the EU, uh, spent most of 1975 wearing a rather gaudy-looking jumper, you can find it on the internet, covered in European flags, campaigning for a yes vote in the 1975 referendum. So there you go. Anyway, thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Um, Do check us out. Do pop by our Explaining History Facebook group, and um, do remain safe, you know, and uh, uh, remain indoors and uh, listen to as many podcasts as you can. I hope it'll pass the time, and you can always check us out on Patreon too. Thanks very much, everybody. All the best. Bye-bye. 